The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear. Superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. It was a bipartisan effort at the state capitol to pass the extension of the cap and trade bill for reducing greenhouse gases this past week. But the only way a handful of Republicans would come to support one of Democrat Jerry Brown's pet projects was to get relief and certainty for California's agricultural community. What did the farmers get? We'll tell you. But another of Governor Brown's pipe dreams is getting resistance. A powerful group of California farmers are balking at paying for the Delta Tunnels project, and we'll tell you why. There are several weak links in getting California's farmers to adopt Internet-based technologies on the farm. We have that report. All that, the latest crop news, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. An effort to extend California's signature program for reducing greenhouse gas emissions to combat climate change cleared the California legislature this past week with the blessing of several farm organizations. The bill cleared the necessary two-thirds threshold in both houses, bringing together a rather unusual coalition of the California Farm Bureau Federation, several business organizations, as well as environmental groups, among others that are rarely aligned at the state capitol. The bill's ambitious goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to 40% below 1990 levels by the year 2030. Assemblyperson Cecilia Aguilar-Curry of Winters told the state assembly that this cap-and-trade extension bill strikes a balance for her rural constituents. For me, standing up against the threat of global warming and protecting the environment is a no-brainer. My concern has always been rooted in preventing unintended consequences on California's small towns, rural communities, and farming communities. This package today is good policy. This package strikes a balance between asking our agricultural and food processing industries to step up while also giving them the assistance they need to get there. The Sacramento Bee reports Senator Tom Berryhill of Modesto was the only Republican to vote for the measure in the state Senate. He said he made his decision after working with the governor to ensure that an extension of the manufacturing tax credit applied to the agricultural industries of California. Do I stand up and have the guts to do the right thing for my people and tell them, you know what, guys, I agree with you. This sucks. That's Devin Mathis, Assemblyman, who represents Visalia, a Republican, one of the few that supported the cap-and-trade bill in the Assembly. And yes, he was rather emotional about his support for the bill. But there's other things that suck more. There's things like the fact that ag has a 3 to 5% margin, and by voting a yes on AB 398, I can guarantee thousands of my friends and neighbors stability in their lives my heart tells me this is the right thing to do and all the politics and all the phone calls and all the bs about if you do this this and all that garbage my job is to have the backs of my friends and my neighbors who elected me to be here in the first place Many ag groups in California sent a letter of support for the new cap-and-trade rules, including the Almond Alliance of California, the Agricultural Council of California, the California Association of Wine Grape Growers, the California Farm Bureau Federation, California Citrus Mutual, and many more. 
All these groups also applauded the inclusion of the suspension of the state responsibility area fee as part of AB 398. If you live in a rural area, you may be very familiar with the SRA fee. It's been levied at the rate of approximately $150 per habitable structure unless their property is already covered by a local fire department. That fee has been disproportionately placed on rural areas of the state, and the suspension will greatly benefit rural residents of the state, according to the groups in this letter. The high temperatures are expected to add to the risk of wildfires. As you move further to the west, especially in California and the other Pacific Coast states, Oregon and Washington, and through the northern Rockies, we do expect a continuation of rather warm, dry, and occasionally breezy conditions. That was USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. And we could see more dry thunderstorms, meaning lightning without the benefit of much rainfall. He adds the number of acres burned in the first half of this month was more than half the amount of the acreage burned in the first six months. Of this year. First half of July, we saw one and a half million plus acres burn in the western United States. And during the entire first half of 2017, nationally, we saw only about 2.8 million acres burning across the U.S. So we've seen a rapid increase in the acreage burned during the first half of July. Meanwhile, he says that grass and brush needed to fuel a fire are heavy because of a wet winter. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The governor's proposed Delta tunnels ran into a room full of skeptics last week. An influential group of San Joaquin Valley farmers who remain unconvinced that the controversial project will deliver the water they need at a price that they're prepared to pay. The Sacramento Bee reports that three weeks after the tunnels received a crucial green light from federal environmental regulators, the $17 billion project got a rather cool reception from nearly 100 growers who farm in the powerful Westlands Water District of Central California. Provided with detailed financial projections at a Westlands board meeting for the first time, the farmers suggested they aren't ready to sign on to the plan. Investment bankers from Goldman Sachs said debt repayment could balloon farmers' water costs to as much as $495 an acre foot, that's under the most expensive scenario, or about triple what Westland's growers currently pay. After a decade of preliminary planning, Westlands and other water agencies south of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, they're beginning to drill into the details of the tunnel's plan in the expectation of deciding in September whether to invest the billions of dollars needed to make that project a reality. Meanwhile, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which serves millions of urban customers, is expected to sign on to the project. However, the sprawling Westlands District, which serves portions of Fresno and Kings Counties, has shown more reluctance. That reluctance is due to the project's myriad complexities and the fact that the tunnels might not generate a substantial amount of additional water for them. And the exact amount of water that could be pumped won't be known for years, largely because many of the environmental regulations governing Delta pumping operations, they're still evolving. And it's that lack of specificity that's clearly frustrating the farmers in the Westlands Water District. Scott Vanderwall, a South Dakota farmer, presented the unique challenges farm and ranch businesses face to lawmakers Thursday. Vanderwall, who is also vice president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, says tax reform is important for agriculture because taxes impact every decision on the farm. Just about every business decision we make is tempered or affected by the tax consequences. 
And those things don't always fit together positively. In his testimony to the House Ways and Means Tax Policy Subcommittee, Vanderwall told lawmakers that reducing the tax burden on farmers and ranchers would help improve their businesses. Every dollar we spend on taxes is a dollar that we could otherwise use in improving our businesses, whether it's upgrading machinery or livestock or hiring more employees, which I know is important to everybody in the country and everybody in Congress. He says farmers and ranchers need to tell their lawmakers how the tax code affects their businesses. I'm doing what I can as an individual, testifying before Congress and letting them know what my personal story is and how taxation affects individual farmers and ranchers. So we would encourage everybody to let their policymakers know what their personal story is. That's a very important thing that that, uh, people in Congress listen to. And to, to hear the individual stories on how taxation affects them is very, very important. Michael Clements, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Alfalfa fields are being irrigated, cut, and baled. Planting of corn and sorghum for silage was completed, but still being cultivated and irrigated. The corn silage crop was in various stages, from newly planted to already producing tassels, and the earliest planted corn is developing ears. Wheat harvest for grain is in its last stage, and straw was being baled. Cotton continues to be irrigated, cultivated, and it's growing well. Cotton was forming squares and blooming. Black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. The peach, nectarine, and plum harvest is in full swing right now. Apricot harvest is wrapping up for the year. Fruit orchards and vineyards are being irrigated. Cherry orchards are pruned, and post-harvest insecticides are being applied. The continued high temperatures are slowing the development of pears, however. Some table grapes were harvested in Tulare County. Grape coloring was reported in some Napa County vineyards. Fungicides and insecticides are being applied to grapes. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. Regreening in citrus has become more common due to the elevated temperatures. Packers were color sorting in order to compensate. Citrus harvest was nearing the end in part due to those high temperatures. Walnut, almond, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated. Mechanical and chemical weed controls continue in nut orchards. Whole split sprays were applied to some almonds. New almond orchards were planted. Pistachios were fertilized. Walnuts were sizing well. Sunblock and coddling moth sprays were applied to walnuts. Harvest preparation activities began with dead wood removal as well as orchard floor preparation. In Calusa County, the processing tomato harvest is underway. In San Joaquin County, the harvest is ongoing for sweet corn, cantaloupes, honeydew melons, watermelons, squash, cucumbers, and other fresh vegetable crops, especially for the farmers' markets. Tomatoes were progressing well. In Fresno County, harvest is underway for organic and conventional tomatoes with lower yields than expected. Quality was reported as very good. The fresh onion harvest is nearing completion, while carrots were prepped for harvest. Dehydrated onions and garlic were drying out for harvest. The onion seed harvest is complete. In Tulare County, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers are being sold at local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers, they're being harvested and shipped domestically. Sweet corn harvest is picking up with more roadside stands opening. Sales at the local farmers' markets are ongoing. Melons are being irrigated and prepped for the upcoming harvest. Non-irrigated grasses and forbs continue to dry out with the summer heat. Rangeland was reported to be in fair to very poor conditions. As rangeland nutritive value declined, supplemental feeding is beginning. Fires across the state ranged in forest and rangeland, forcing some animal evacuations. More than twice as many acres have burned this year to date as the five average of the same interval. Milk production was negatively impacted by the extreme temperatures. Cattle continue to be moved to higher elevation rangeland. 
Sheep grazed on retired pasture and dormant alfalfa. Bees were active in alfalfa for seed, melon, sunflower, and vegetable fields. We told you last week about butter production falling off in the state of California. The American Farm Bureau has a market analysis that said the June heat wave is going to affect the amount of butter produced in California. And this state accounts for about 30% of the nation's production. And it's not just butter. And enter the July heat wave. And dairy farmers throughout the state are doing their best to keep the cows cool because milk production could fall off as well. Just listen to the comments of Hank Van Exel, who recently told the California Farm Bureau Federation what he has to do to keep his cows calm and cool at his San Joaquin County dairy farm. Uh, these last couple months have been kind of stressful to be in the dairy business here in California due to the heat. We've uh, In June, we really had a, a, a week that was really pretty, pretty well unprecedented, and it was a very stressful time for the cattle and for the employees as well as the owners of the dairies. And then we finally got a reprieve, but now we're again in July having that same problem. So some of my fans have been running 24 hours a day. We have misters and fans and uh, we try to keep our cows cool and do uh, the best we can to keep them out of the sun and at night we have people actually watching for cows that have been overstressed and uh, still showing the stress of overheating and we get those cows in and we uh, hose them down and literally uh, treat them kind of like you would a person with heat stress. With all this extra heat stress they're drinking a lot more water and maybe not consuming the feed so we're probably looking at losing somewhere in the area of 10 to 15 percent of our milk but also more importantly the components inside the milk, the butter fat and the solids non-fat, which we are uh, paid for. And that kind of tells you the, the, some of the stress that the cows are in. They're very much like people. When it's really hot outside, they don't like to eat as much and they like to uh, drink a lot more fluids. What's keeping farmers from fully using technology to gather data and to use that farm data? Privacy, security, and ownership. The lack of trust among farmers in these ag technology providers. One problem we have is rural broadband. Internet access. The voices of farm technology and legal experts testifying this past week at a House Ag Subcommittee hearing, and that last obstacle was mentioned by all of them. Roger Royce is a California lawyer whose firm tries to connect farmers with technology companies. He said the costs of things like remote crop sensors are coming down, but these sensors can't send the data anywhere without a large broadband capacity. Each sensor is its own internet user. In other words, it's not daisy-chained. It's each sensor has to load up to the cloud. That requires a tremendous amount of internet access. Which some farmers don't have. And Indiana ag lawyer Todd Jansen says it's not just that one farmer has it and another competing farmer down the road does not. We should always keep in mind that our farmers are operating in a global market. So he says the U.S. needs to invest in connecting all U.S. farmers to broadband so that our farmers can compete with farmers overseas who are rapidly adopting new technologies. Bringing us to other reasons that many of our farmers are skittish about the new data technology. Now, yes, many farmers have tractors and such that are collecting all kinds of data from agronomic to economic. However, many producers are not doing anything with it because they don't trust people with that data. This trust issue is a real issue. Roger Royce said that in some cases the mistrust is justified. He outlined a scenario in which a a person collects data on somebody's farm, maybe using a drone up there or maybe hacking into the data, data on yields. Or maybe financial data. I'm going to figure out how profitable that farm is. And then I'm going to take that data and I'm going to go sell it to the companies that sell the inputs to the farm because they know how profitable the farm is. 
or maybe I'll go sell it to one of that farmer's neighbors so he can come and, you know, he knows what that farm is worth. Or maybe I'll sell it back to the owner of the land. Ouch. Or maybe it's the government a farmer might not trust, as Texas cotton producer Billy Tiller put it. I mean, what would keep uh, EPA from wanting to just subpoena my records around? I'm in a watershed, so there's a lot of caution. One more reason for caution is that when farmers do decide to trust their data to a data management and storage company, the contracts can be very complex. Todd Jansen says, yes, farmers sign contracts all the time. But now they're being asked to check an I accept box followed by pages and pages of legal type that they may or may not read. So all of this is hampering adoption of new farm technologies. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. With over 70 confirmed cases of Wong Long Bing in Southern California, Governor Jerry Brown authorized $10 million in general fund spending as part of the state's annual $183 billion budget to help address that fatal citrus disease, also known as citrus greening disease. The Western Farm Press reports that the state recently announced that 73 citrus trees in Southern California have tested positive for HLB since 2012. That's when the first ever case of HLB was discovered in a citrus tree with multiple grafts in a yard in Hacienda Heights. By 2015, the disease was being found in nearby San Gabriel, east of Los Angeles. As of June, 56 trees in San Gabriel had tested positive for the disease. Since then, California Department of Food and Agriculture inspectors have either found positive trees or positive psyllids in six additional cities, leading to eight the total cities confirmed with diseased trees or insects. Of these additional cities, Anaheim appears to be another hot spot. They have 11 diseased trees, along with eight positive psyllid samples. In all cases, the state has removed and destroyed the diseased trees. The entire Southern California region is also under an Asian citrus psyllid quarantine, which restricts the movement of plant and fruit materials. Psyllids have been trapped as far north as the Bay Area and recently in Roseville, just east of Sacramento, where a homeowner illegally moved a potted citrus tree from a quarantine zone in Southern California, bringing with her psyllids that were later discovered by county officials. The homeowner was subsequently fined for violating state quarantine rules. California citrus industry leaders have been trying to prevent a repeat of what continues to drag the Florida citrus industry further into unprofitable territory. At a citrus grower meeting in Central California, California in late June, farmers and industry leaders learned that Florida may see another 15% decline in fruit production because of the impacts of citrus greening disease. If you're wondering why the state of California is fighting such a concerted battle to keep the Asian citrus psyllid from gaining a foothold in California, well, just listen to what's happening to the Florida citrus industry. Florida orange production is projected to come in at 68 million boxes this year. That's down nearly 30% from the 2014-2015 crop of 96 million boxes. In 2013-2014, the state produced 124 million boxes. Way back when, in 2007-2008, the Florida citrus industry was producing 170 million boxes of oranges. And again this year, 68 million. That's a 60% decline in orange production in Florida in just the last nine years. What happened? The Asian citrus psyllid vectoring the deadly disease Huang Long Bing, also known as citrus greening disease, that has decimated the Florida citrus crop. 
Well, there is some good news about all the heat we've had lately. It has spurred on California's rice crop. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says all the heat of June and July has done wonders for one of the main crops of the Sacramento Valley. Perhaps most noteworthy is the fact that the hot weather in California has allowed that late planted rice to actually surpass the average pace for heading. Now, 15% of the crop heading, five-year average is 11%, but we remain behind last year when one quarter of the California rice had headed by July 16, 2016. And in the other rice-growing regions of the United States, Rippey says the rice crop is looking good as well. We have 70% of the crop good to excellent, down two points, 5% very poor to poor, up a point from last week, and fairly similar but just slightly better than a year ago when we were at 68% good to excellent, 7% very poor to poor. It is a critical time as the rice crop heads out. One-third of the crop, 33%, headed by July 16th, one point ahead of the five-year average, but behind last year's 39%. Meanwhile, back here in California, rice grower Sandy Den in the Sacramento Valley says summer is her favorite time of the year for watching that beautiful rice grow. Well, spring is past, and it's my least favorite time of the year, and the flowers are all blooming, this, that, the next thing. And I say, no, I really don't like spring because it's fickle. Well, in the last few years, it hasn't been fickle, but this year it was really fickle. Rain one day, sunshine the next, you think you're going to move and plant, and the next thing you know, it's raining again. So it was a stressful spring, and this is the reward. We're about halfway through the crop now uh, into its maturity, and uh, it's a delight at this time of year. I love it. It uh, has the most beautiful green to it now that you could imagine. And now that weed control is pretty much done with, the rice is more like a lawn in its looks now, and and the view up and down this part of the valley is wonderful. We're very fortunate up here in the north end of the Sacramento Valley on the west side. We've been able to have um, all full planting because we weren't as affected with the late spring and the, and the heavy flooding in the winter. And so that's been a blessing. And it's just, it's a beautiful time of the year, and I like to celebrate it. The sound of feral pigs digging and rooting. Nature's rototillers. Uh, Rick Engelman with the National Wildlife Research Center in Fort Collins, Colorado. Now, most farmers know that the growing numbers of feral pigs in at least 35 states are doing damage to crops and entire ecosystems, but now also... Damage to archaeological sites. Sites, thousands of them, that have not been excavated yet because of the lack of resources to do it. So archaeologists want to preserve them until they can work on them. Engelman was asked to look personally at pig damage to hundreds of sites on two Florida military bases. 42% had visible damage. Many of them are known to have artifacts buried just four inches below the surface. Pigs can root down three feet. Engelman says when you get rid of the feral pigs, crops and ecosystems can recover. But when pigs hit an archaeological site... That little window into understanding what it was like hundreds or thousands of years ago is gone, and it won't come back. Ingeman's research was in Florida, but this could be a concern in any state with feral pig populations. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Domestic pigs are a familiar farm animal, but have you heard about wild pigs? The missionaries brought them with them back in the 1700s. Why did they do that? Where are they? How big a problem are they? They're quite an expensive problem, actually. 
We're talking with Roger Baldwin. He's a UC Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology. And Roger, wild pigs are really a big problem here in California, aren't they, for ranchers and farmers? They sure are. They they cause a tremendous amount of damage in a variety of different ways, um, whether it's their rooting activity uh, in rangeland areas, which can reduce forage for for livestock. Uh, it it um, opens up opportunities for invasive weeds to get established. Uh, they can foul water sources, uh, leading to um, potential uh, uh, water safety concerns. Um, we see increased erosion from pigs in certain areas. And then, of course, if we get into agricultural production areas, then we're lo- looking at uh, losses in crop production, as well as potential food safety concerns from E. coli uh, contamination. So lots of lots of concerns when it comes to wild pigs. You have been conducting a survey of garnering information from uh, farmers and ranchers where there may have been wild pig damage. What are the areas of California where they are most intrusive? Uh, pigs are found pretty much throughout a large swath of the state. I think they're now found in all but one county of California. But yeah, you're certainly correct that there are certain areas where we see more common problems with pigs. These include some of the uh, north coast areas uh, extending, you know, from Mendocino down through Sonoma County, Marin. Uh, some of those areas are kind of hot spots for pigs and pig damage, as well as some of the central coast areas, particularly Monterey, San Luis Obispo counties, and in, in, in that general area. And then over in the, the foothills of the Sierras as well, uh, Fresno, Tulare's, um, some of those counties into the central part of the state also have pretty high pig populations. Talk a little bit about the history of the wild pig in California, how it got here, how it got loose, and what it's been doing. Well, uh, they've been here for a while now. Uh, I don't know that anybody is still completely certain how they all got established. There's several competing theories. Uh, one is simply that they were intentionally released in certain areas so that they could just forage naturally um, and then uh, be harvested whenever needed. Uh, some believe they may have just been uh, pigs that escaped and got established in certain areas. And then, you know, in the early 1900s, there's the belief that, um, you know, Russian or Eurasian boars were brought over here and released in certain areas to provide hunting opportunities. And this seems to be particularly prevalent over in some of the central coast areas where we see more of that Russian or Eurasian boar in the uh, general bloodlines over there. But, of course, through the years, there's been a tremendous amount of mingling um, between uh, feral um, pigs and, and the Eurasian boars that have been released in, in certain areas. What sort of damage can they do to uh, to a farm, and, and how big are these critters? Well, um, like, like I said, there's a variety of different kinds of damage that they can cause. Um, their general rooting activity can be damaging. If we're talking about you know farm production areas, they can root up cover crops that are planted. Uh, they can root up the crops themselves, particularly if we're talking about uh, leafy greens and certain vegetable crops. They can damage irrigation structures. Um, if we're uh, in areas like uh, with, with certain crops like almonds, where they harvest and then shake the trees and then have the nuts fall down and then scoop them up, uh, we see problems with pig wallowing. They'll they'll find 
uh, wet areas and uh, following irrigation and wall on creek create these depressions that the nuts then all get trapped down into and can't get sucked up properly through some of the harvesting equipment. So we see some of those kinds of damage. Uh, for some of the tree crops, they'll actually break down branches of the trees to get at fruits and nuts on those trees. Um, so that's just one other kind of damage that we see. I'm sorry, what was the other question there? What is the size of these animals? The size of pigs, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, 100 to 200 pounds. Um, 200 pounds is, is getting pretty good size for, for pigs here in California, but they do occasionally get a little bit larger than that. Uh, so you can have pretty good sized pigs. Now, isn't it, I heard that possibly the source of an E. coli outbreak in California spinach fields may be attributed to wild pigs. Yeah, that was related back to an incident in 2006 where um, pigs got out into, like you said, so, to some spinach fields in, in the Salinas Valley. And that was um, uh, a big concern at that time. It led to some very substantial uh, changes in how um, particularly leafy grains are managed uh, with respect to keeping out wildlife, and it may have led to some pretty extreme changes in in um, habitat management on adjacent spinach fields, uh, increased use of fencing and, and other management tools like that. Um, so it, it led to a pretty stark landscape for for wildlife in those areas, and some of that has been rolled back since that time because they found that you know really a lot of those changes didn't provide a lot of potential benefit and, and were somewhat damaging to the landscape out there. But you know, pigs do carry a lot of different diseases, and and they certainly uh, can carry things like um, E. coli in fecal matter too. And so there's a real big concern of, of keeping pigs out of those those certain areas. Are there problems with wild pigs spreading disease to domesticated pigs? Yeah, so there is a real concern there. Pigs carry uh, a variety of different diseases. I think it's it's over 30 different documented diseases that, that pigs can carry, and a lot of those can be um, transmitted to, to domestic wildlife, whether it's um, pseudo-rabies, uh, leptospirosis, brucellosis, a um, variety of different diseases, and some of those can be um, potentially transmitted to humans as well, so there are a lot of this, those concerns. Pigs are, are pretty smart critters, and I would think that if one wants to fence them out of rangeland or a farm, that it would have to be a pretty special fence because they'd find a way to get under the fence. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Fencing pigs out is, is a very challenging proposition. They're very strong. They're a very smart animal. Uh, they can figure things out quite easily. And so um, fencing is used to some extent to keep pigs out of, of certain areas. Um, and it can be relatively successful, although a 100% um, pig-proof fence um, maybe hasn't been developed yet. Uh, a really determined pig can get into to certain areas. They do have to be maintained regularly because pigs will travel up and down those fences, and if they start to see an area of weakness in the fence, they can exploit that, whether it's something that they can, you know, maybe a wire's gotten a little bit loose at the bottom, and so they can kind of dig a little bit and, and crawl underneath it. Um, other cracks and, and places like that they might potentially be able to get through as well. Uh, so pigs are quite good at getting around a lot of those fencing structures, but they, they can be effective to some extent at, at, at least slowing movement of pigs into certain areas. Now, I know that pigs have been allegedly eradicated from places like Santa Cruz Island or Pinnacles National Park, but it, that was a rather expensive venture for a, a few feral pigs, wasn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, pigs can be removed from certain areas if, if the money is available to do so, but, but you're right, it's absolutely very expensive to do so. And it's not necessarily getting in the first, um, I don't know, 70 or 80% of the pigs in an area. I mean, that's challenging enough and it's expensive enough, but the real expense comes in getting those last few remaining pigs because they really wise up. They get to the point where it's essentially impossible to get them in traps. Um, they're very good at avoiding people out there who might um, be hunting, trying to remove pigs individually. And so it takes some pretty unique tools to be able to do that, uh, to get those last few remaining pigs. Oftentimes that includes uh, the use of dogs to track pigs. Um, it might include the use of helicopters to fly around and, and try to spot pigs. Uh, they have another strategy called um, Judas pigs, where they will actually go and capture one pig in the sounder or a group of pigs, put a radio collar on that pig, and then let it go. And then they'll track that pig back to wherever it goes. And if it takes them back uh, to a group of, of other pigs, then they can, can remove that whole group at a time. So it takes a variety of different tools to, to be able to get rid of um, the pigs in a particular area. And getting rid of those last very few pigs are what really is difficult and expensive. That's Roger Baldwin. He's a Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology. We're talking about the control of wild pigs, which cause $1.5 billion in economic damage to agriculture in California every year. And according to Baldwin, they're rather aggressive creatures that can scare off your own domestic animals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we see that around watering sources, um, feeders, things along those lines. Uh, they definitely think that, um, they own that area and, and will keep those other animals out until they're done utilizing that resource. And so, uh, that can be problematic both from a rancher perspective, but also problematic for some of our native wildlife species, uh, which are not used to, to dealing with such an, uh, an overtly aggressive animal. I would think that because of their lack of sweat glands that they're attracted to pieces of property where there may be year-round standing water. Yeah, water is one of the real limiting resources for pigs. Um, it's it's the one, one of the key things that they absolutely have to have. And so whether we're talking about riparian areas, ponds, um, areas that um, supply water for livestock, etc., or irrigation in, in agricultural areas, um, these are resources that pigs will usually center around. They, you'll never find pigs too far away from a water source because it is absolutely imperative for them. Now, we talked about uh, the limits of excluding pigs from a, a, a piece of land. Uh, what are the other legal ways to control wild pigs? Well, pigs can... Um, be removed through depredation permits. So if you are a landowner who has um, pigs that are causing damage on the property, then you can contact California Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, explain the situation. They may or may not come out and assess the situation. And if they deem it appropriate, they'll issue you a depredation permit in which you can uh, then go out and remove pigs um, based on uh, whatever they provide, whatever guidance they provide in that depredation permit. So it may be shooting, it may allow for the use of trapping, et cetera. Um, if you're in certain counties, wildlife services available, is available uh, to assist with this. Um, they can go ahead and take care of, of some of the trapping and removal efforts for you. Certain counties also still have 
um, trappers that are hired by county agricultural commissioners um, to to go out and and take care of pig problems. And so those are are some potential options. Hunting is used to some extent to to help control pig populations. Hunting usually isn't enough to reduce populations um, so much, but they can be used to essentially move pigs off of property. So it, it won't solve the problem for everybody in the neighborhood, but it might solve the problem for a, a, lo- a local rancher. But usually, when it comes to to pigs, there's you know not much else with. Um, respect to um, you know anything like along the lines of repellents or fertility drugs or even too much in the way of habitat manipulation that's going to be um, successful in, in eliminating problems with pigs. It's usually more of uh, removing pigs from a certain area or you know fencing in, in some localized cases where um, it might be appropriate. Is the wild pig problem growing or is it static? Uh, yeah, the, the pig problem, we do believe, is, is a growing issue. Um, we've seen rapid expansion and increase in pig numbers over the last several decades. As I mentioned, we're now up to, to pigs up in, in all but one county in, in the state. And so populations are expanding. Um, they're expanding not just in size, but in, in areas that they are occupying. Uh, so it is definitely an increasing problem. Now, I know last August that you sent out a re- request for information from landowners to ask if they have a wild pig problem in order for you to sort of target the areas where wild pigs are, are hap- inhabiting in California. Have you been getting some results back from those uh, landowners? Yeah, we've been getting some pretty good feedback so far. Um, we haven't actually... Um, begun our analysis on that project yet, um, but we are looking for information pertaining to the amount of damage, the types of damage um, that pigs cause in a variety of different ran- ranching and agricultural landscapes. Um, we're also interested in how people perceive wild pigs. With wild pigs, we know that they cause a tremendous amount of damage in a variety of different situations, but it's a bit of a conundrum, too, because uh, wild pigs are also considered a game species here in California, and so a lot of people do like to hunt pigs. Um, there's a lot of revenue that is brought in from pig hunting uh, here in the state, so there are some potential benefits that the pigs provide, and, and there are a lot of reasons why some individuals in the state like having pigs. And so uh, it is a bit of a balancing act there when it comes to the potential um, harm they cause as well as some benefits that are provided for some individuals. Yeah, but then you see pictures like uh, you have posted on the UCANR uh, Wild Pigs page of, of wild pigs drinking and swimming in a cattle trough. <laughs> Absolutely, and so you get those kinds of interactions that that are real potential problems there, Uh, whether it be because they're excluding cattle from drinking water, um, utilizing some of those water resources, or probably, uh, more importantly, fouling the water and increasing the likelihood of disease transmittance between pigs and cattle. Um, There's a a tremendous number of uh, potential risks and hazards associated with having pigs in certain areas. You have a lot of great information on Online about wild pigs at the pest note on the UCANR page. If people just Google wild pigs UC, the letters UC, uh, I'm sure that page will pop up. And in the uh, research section at the bottom of that page, there's even information if, if people want to try to build a super duper fence to keep them out. <laughs> 
Absolutely, yeah. There's lots of good information there, whether it be um, information for, for building a fence on how to keep them out, uh, for utilizing traps if you have a depredation permit to do so, and just some good general information on biology of wild pigs so you can have a better understanding of uh, how they move out there in the landscape, habitats that they like to use, how quickly they reproduce, etc. Lots of great information there. Wild pigs, they're destructive pests with voracious appetites, causing $1.5 billion in economic damage to agriculture and the environment in California every year. Roger Baldwin, UC Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist. Thanks for a few minutes of your time today talking about wild pigs. Absolutely. Happy to help out. Hear the phrase risk management as it relates to agriculture, and your first thought may be crop insurance. And indeed, that is part of a comprehensive risk management strategy. Although, as Jim Slama of Family Farmed points out, for growers targeting the local food markets, think farmers markets, local delivery and such, risk management means it almost always includes food safety because food safety is one of the biggest risks that both farmers and buyers face. Including education on food safety regulations and development of a producer's food safety plan to create accountability. Accountability within the organization for who's responsible for what. It sets up things like traceability. Slama adds traceability from a risk management aspect is key. Because if there is a food safety outbreak, there needs to be identifications on the boxes that it came from this farm. And in some cases, they even want to know like what field. So they could also track back who else might have got that produce. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.